Bible books in 30 minutes. Through the Bible, book by book, with author, pastor and Bible teacher Mike Beaumont, who's talking to David Tavner. Just for a change, this time, Mike, we're going to be looking at two of Paul's letters together, Colossians and Philemon. Uh, what's the connection? The connection is that Philemon was part of the church in Colossae, and the two letters were written at the same time from the same place. So very similar setting and context there, though letter to Philemon dealing with one particular issue in one particular situation that Paul covers in general terms in the wider letter to the church. So this church in Colossae. So tell us a bit about Colossae. Colossae was sort of near to Ephesus. It was just down the valley from there, but it was past its heyday, really. It had been quite a a significant place at one time. It was on one of the main routes that linked the eastern parts of the empire right through to Ephesus. But by New Testament times, uh, it had become a sort of a bit passe, I suppose, with apologies to people who still live there, a bit like some of the market towns in parts of our country that at one time were thriving hubs of activity and economy, but now really a bypassed in the greater scheme of things. So it, it was pretty much that sort of place. And in Colossae then, there were, what, a group of believers, Christians linked to Paul? Not to Paul directly, but linked to him indirectly. We've said in previous episodes how Paul was a great strategist in his evangelism and how he always planted his churches in key regional cities. Now, for this part of the world, for Turkey, that was Ephesus, that big city there. So he had established a church there, had worked well with that church. But then out of there, his intention had been that other churches would be established. And that's exactly what happens here. We're introduced in this letter to a guy called Epaphras. And Epaphras was one of Paul's converts in Ephesus, but he'd then been sent down the valley, perhaps to his own hometown, where he had taken the gospel And it was Epaphras who'd actually established and planted the church in Colossae. So it wasn't a sort of son of Paul. It was a grandson of Paul in church terms. But obviously Paul still has some concern for these Christians in Colossae, even though he doesn't really know them, hasn't had any direct contact with them. Very much so. I mean, Paul's heart was was big for all churches everywhere, but particularly those that he felt responsibility for. And it looks like his apostolic oversight still reached there out of his link through Epaphras. Epaphras was one of his spiritual sons, so it's natural that he as a spiritual son would look to Paul as a spiritual father for his wisdom and his insight into what the church was facing there. So what are the issues that that Paul's helping them with here? Well, it seems to be some issues that had sort of crept in from the culture round about them. So they were very still focused on Jesus, but they'd fallen into this danger of a sort of Jesus plus. It's okay to have Jesus, but you also need this to be a full and complete Christian. And there were a quite wide ranging uh, number of issues, some of them that seemed quite opposites uh, to one another. 
So there seemed to be one part of the church that was majoring on what we might call ceremonialism. They were laying a, a lot on ceremonies of certain festivals or certain food or drink that you should or shouldn't have. But the polar opposite of that, there were some that were focused on asceticism, which means the avoidance of pleasurable things because they're seen somehow as unholy, not worthy. So you've got these two quite different groups in the church who remember Jesus is still there. Oh, yes, we believe in Jesus, but, you know, Jesus and you really ought to keep this special day or Jesus or you really ought to avoid this food or Jesus, but really an ascetic lifestyle is best. And then there was some who had got caught up in angels. Now, you still get some Christians like that today. Angels are real. I have no doubt about that. They're there throughout Scripture. But, you know, our focus is to be Jesus, not the angels he might send to us. But in this church, some of them had got very caught up in angels and ended up worshipping angels. And then some had got caught up in secret knowledge. We've talked before about groups and organizations and religious movements that would let you into their group if you had their secret knowledge and they would share it with you. So you've got all of these sort of slightly conflicting and contrasting things going on, all loving Jesus, all wanting Jesus at the center, but Jesus plus. So really the whole thrust of Colossians is Paul writing to them saying, listen, if you have Jesus, you have everything. You have all you need. Jesus is fully adequate for your salvation. And it's really not a case of Jesus plus. So that's why Jesus and who he is has such a prominent place in this letter. And then out of that, he'll go on to show how that should affect various aspects of living. Like so often with Paul, though, he obviously has to underline things, as it were, put things in bold. How does he lay out this centrality or completeness in Jesus? Well, he really has got two big sections in this letter where actually it's packed with what we would call theology about who Jesus is. It's really interesting. Whenever Paul wants to change behaviour, he starts with beliefs. He does not start nitpicking around people's edges, as it were, demanding that change this, change that, change the other. What he starts with is their belief and renewing how they see things so that out of that they say, oh, I see, and then their behaviour changes. So there's a couple of sections where he explains quite clearly who Jesus is. In Colossians chapter 1, there's a really key passage here where he says, Jesus, from verse 15, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. That word image, icon, means exact replica. Just like, say, a rubber stamp today, you put it on the ink pad, you stamp it down, and what you get on the paper is the exact replica of what's on the stamp itself. And Paul is saying here, make no mistake, Jesus is not something slightly less than God. He's, he's, he's not just an angel. He really is the image, the exact replica 
of God. Look at Jesus and you're looking at God himself. And then he goes on to say he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. As some people have misunderstood that thinking firstborn, well, that means he was less than God. Uh, so maybe the Trinity is wrong after all. But what Paul is doing here, he is thinking of the Jewish culture of how the firstborn son had the inheritance. He had a double portion to be able to care for the family. So he's thinking here of how everything that is God's is also Christ. He is the rightful inheritor. It's, it's not saying he is less than Jesus. And to make sure we understand that, he goes on to say, by him, all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. Now, in good Jewish thinking, there was only one person who had created all things, and that was God himself. So here is Paul making clear again that he is no one less than God. He's before all things. In him, all things hold together. He's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy. And here he gets to his climax for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. Nothing short of the whole of God is in the whole of Jesus. And then there's a, a second section in chapter 2 where he comes back to this again. And again, I'll just read a, a few verses. He says, for in Christ, all the fullness of the deity dwells in bodily form I, I don't think you could get any clearer than that all the fullness what's the fullness well it's that which fills up it's everything all that is everything of God lived in bodily form in Jesus so he really goes out of his way here to show that in Jesus who is fully truly God we have everything we need so why on earth would we want to think we need to add anything else to him? And knowing Paul, because he's often very practical, even though, as you said just now, he's very theological, how does that work out in practice then, as far as he's concerned, particularly for these Christians in Colossae? It works out in a number of ways in this letter. One of the first ways is, to say, if you have understood the centrality of Jesus, it will affect your attitudes to one another. So here are some of these Christians saying, oh, we, we really should keep Sabbath or we really should keep this festival or we really need to fast on Fridays. And he's saying, look, if you've understand that Jesus is what is important, then you will understand that all these other things are frankly peripheral they're secondary so he'll go on to say don't let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival a new moon celebration or a sabbath day these are just a shadow of the things that are to come and he'll go on to say don't bother with angels so very practically here saying if you've understood jesus is what really counts then do you know what 
hey, there might be some things in your Christian life that you think are quite important to you. But we might put it like this. You're going to have to learn to live with differences. You're going to have to learn to live with the fact that I really think keeping this festival is important. And you know what? It's neither there nor here to me. Uh, it's not that important. But what matters to both of us is Jesus. So there's some great teaching here about learning how to live with differences in the church of Jesus and understanding that the main thing is the main thing, and that is Jesus, who he is, what he did for us. And there are some things, well, it's just opinion, frankly, at the end of the day, and it's certainly not worth dividing over. So if they could grasp who Jesus is, then that would put everything else into perspective. Exactly. And that really is the whole thrust of this letter. He'll go on to sort of unpack that further in chapter three, where he'll talk about if you've grasped who Jesus is and what he's done for us, then that will affect the way that you live. And it's interesting, some of the issues that he addresses here are exactly the same as the issues that we looked at in Ephesians, relationships between husbands and wives and children, uh, relationships with slaves. They're exactly the same. So it seems pretty likely that Ephesians and Colossians were written at exactly the same time. And while they didn't have stick and paste in those days, he's done the equivalent of that. And there's some wording that's almost identical because obviously the ideas were the same. So get Jesus central and these things will flow out into life. You mentioned sort of masters and slaves there. That was very much part of life then in their context. And this other letter, Philemon, that sort of is when the theory from Colossians is put into practice, is it? Yeah, absolutely. That's a really good way to sum it up, David. The theory turned into practice there because Philemon is, is a friend of Paul who lives in Colossae. And Paul writes in this short letter to him about a slave called Onesimus. And it seems Onesimus has stolen from his master Philemon and then run away. Now, you have to understand that was an offence punishable by death under Roman law. Onesimus had run, made his way to Rome, ended up somehow coming into contact with Paul, and there in Rome had ended up becoming a Christian. And now Paul has a bit of a dilemma because as a Roman citizen, he has a duty to hand Onesimus over to the authorities. But of course, now Onesimus is a brother in Christ and he has a duty to extend grace and forgiveness to him. So what does he do? He writes this short letter to Philemon whom he describes uh, as one of his friends there and uh, says that I've come across this runaway slave, Onesimus, and he's become really useful to me now he has found Jesus. It's interesting, the word Onesimus probably means useless, so there's a play on words here. Old Mr. Useless has suddenly become incredibly useful to me. In fact, he's even become, he quotes these words, he's become 
my child. There's the suggestion clearly that he became a Christian through Paul's ministry. So, so Paul says, I'm sending this runaway slave back home now. And I know you could do what you could do, but actually I'm sending him back to you as a brother in Christ. And I, I'm asking you to welcome him as a brother. And uh, if he owes you anything, put that to my account and I'll settle it with you. So he's really saying, Philemon, of course you're free to do what the law says you can do. But I want you to know that you owe your very life to me. And uh, this guy who's coming back to you now comes back still as a slave, because in Roman culture, one's a slave, always a slave. Uh, I'm sending him back, but I'm sending him back very different. He's coming back as a brother. And so now that needs to affect your relationship. Not once does he say, I'm expecting you to free him. Remember, we've said in a previous episode that slavery was so ingrained, so part of the infrastructure of the Roman Empire's life that it would have been impossible to do that. So he undermines it rather than destroys it. And the principle that he's written about in both Ephesians and in Colossians Here's an opportunity now for it to work out, for them still to be master and slave, but now to receive one another in a Christian way with the master remembering that he too has a master in heaven and the slave remembering that he should work hard for his master, whether he's watching or not. Clearly, it was well known in circles the slaves didn't do that when they were being watched. So here's a, a really practical outworking of that principle. And Paul is very clever in the way he sets this up. Put yourself in Philemon's shoes for a second. How would you have received that uh, letter? Well, that's interesting because, you see, if my slave had run away, I'd have probably had to spend money on buying another one, wouldn't I? So I'm out of pocket now. But Paul's offered to pay you. Paul's offered to pay me now. So that's taken that one away, hasn't it? And I suppose here is a challenge of, so how, how deep is your Christian faith, Mike, would be the issue there. You know, it's easy to say, oh, yeah, we're followers of Jesus until it touches an issue that is really important to us, that maybe might cost us to follow that through. Well, I imagine that he felt pretty annoyed, first of all, when he ran away and pretty angry. And as he worked his way through this letter that Paul has sent, I imagine the sort of heckles dropping slowly and him realising, yeah, I know you're right. Because his own life had changed as a result of Paul. Yeah, absolutely. And so because of that, he's in a position of understanding that what had happened to him had now happened to his slave. And so they're now truly brothers in Jesus. And this surely has to change the way that I treat him. Now, again, in the culture of the time, that didn't have to mean you must now let him go. But Paul is very clear in Ephesians and Colossians. You do have to treat him differently. When Onesimus you know, is sent back and maybe put yourself in his shoes for a second. What would that have been like? <laughs> I think I would have said, if Paul had said to me, look, uh, we need to do what's right. We need to send you back. You know, my first words would have been, um, are you sure? 
I'm not sure this is a great idea. I know what he's like. If I get him on a bad day, he'll be in a mood. Listen, you could think of all sorts of things. But the truth is, Onesimus was going back, knowing that under Roman law, he could have been going back to execution, to death. So, so this is not a cheap decision he makes. And I think it's a reflection of the depth of encounter that Onesimus must have had with Jesus to be willing to go back. I mean, he is willing to lay his life on the line. And I'm sure Paul had said to him, listen, trust me, it's going to be all right. <laughs> because I think, you know, he knew Philemon well. He knew he was his son in the faith too. But there's still a, a measure of risk there for Philemon. And I think that probably speaks to us today that sometimes, you know, when, when God challenges us to do things, there is an element of risk or cost. And the truth is we don't know how it will work out until it works out. And that's where the faith comes in. So in this case, I guess we don't know what happened. But what I think we are right to think about is the, this wasn't just a sort of private arrangement between Philemon and Onesimus. Philemon was what leading leading a church, was he not? Uh, well, he's he's certainly, if not leading the church, a key part in it. And you're right; it's not private at all. Because if we go back to Colossians for a moment, Paul lists a whole number of people there at the end of the letter who are sending greetings to the church. And, and it's almost as if, and obviously the two letters went together, you know, they're going to someone in the church and to the church, and both are going to get read, no doubt. So not only is the church hearing what Paul is saying to Philemon, there are a whole number of people he lists at the end of Colossians 4 who are there with him, who are sort of almost... Uh, witnesses to, to what's going to happen. There, there's Tychicus who delivered the letter. There's Onesimus himself, the runaway slave. Aristarchus, Paul describes as a fellow prisoner. Mark, the Mark who wrote the gospel. Epaphras, the founder of the church. All these get mentioned by name at the end of chapter four. And others, our dear friend Luke and Demas, send greetings. And he says, send greetings to such and such and so and so. Is that Luke, the gospel writer? Absolutely, yes. So you mean Luke, the gospel writer, and Mark, the gospel writer, were together? I mean, I hadn't quite imagined that. You know, the, you think of these gospel writers as sort of... Uh, separate and, yeah isn't, uh, you know, isn't that interesting Luke and Joe, well, obviously Matthew and which I think explains some of the reason why we find such similarities between their gospels you know why wouldn't they have talked about it Mark we know from early church history was the interpreter of Peter he wrote Peter's account so here's an opportunity for them to share and research their stories Luke begins his gospel by saying that he's carefully researched carefully looked for witnesses and evidence. What better evidence here than the guy who's the mouthpiece of Peter? So all these people are aware of these letters, obviously, and would have been watching Philemon's response. Paul was crafty, really. I think he knew exactly what he was doing. But do you know what? He still gave the guy the choice. And I think that's really important. You know, if, if we're responsible for mentoring people or leading a group of people, never corner them, never 
take choice away from them. Choice is part of what it means to be human. It's what God gave to Adam in the garden. And of course, he used it wrongly there. But in Christ, we're enabled to make good choices and right choices. So never be tempted to shortcut. You know, sometimes just to get the result, we can be tempted to shortcut or say, well, if I were you, David, I think you should do this. The trouble is you are not learning. You're not listening to the Holy Spirit. So I think Paul sets up things pretty well to get the answer that he was hoping for. But at the end of the day, he pushes the choice back onto Philemon himself. And that's what we always need to do with others. So we don't know Philemon's response, but was it likely that Paul would find out? Well, he was certainly hoping to, because at the end of Philemon, uh, he says, oh, and one more thing, prepare a guest room for me because I hope to be restored to you in answer to your prayers. Now, remember, he's under house arrest in Rome. He is hoping to be freed. And we know that he was and did some more mission work before being finally arrested again that led to his execution. So, again, here's probably a little nudge that, you know, whatever you decide, <laughs> I'm hoping to come and see you soon. And uh, you can tell me all about it then. So he was very much hoping to to call and see him in the near future, yeah. What we said earlier, I think, was that in Colossians, focusing on Jesus and who Jesus is then affects your actions, affects your decisions, affects the choices you make. So mm. is that, again, something to draw out of, of this key theme from, from Colossians? Yes, I think so. And just as we saw in Ephesians, you know, written at the same time too, Getting your belief right about Jesus is not just a matter of good theology. If you've understood who Jesus is and what he has done for you, then it will inevitably lead to a change in lifestyle. There will inevitably be things that you can't do anymore. You're just not comfortable with anymore. Why? Because you know God's not comfortable with them. And there will be things that you want to start pursuing. So good theology will always lead to good practice. And so many of Paul's letters are constructed in exactly that way. He wants people to understand fully the wonder of what God has done for them in Jesus. And as a result of that, live differently. If you were to sort of sum up Colossians and I suppose the example in Philemon, what are we learning about what Paul's saying about what really matters? What really matters is Jesus. <laughs> it's a very simple answer in a sense, but to these folk who were wanting Jesus plus, he, he brings it back to it, it's Jesus. That's what matters. Get a right understanding of who he is and what he's done and everything else takes its place. In fact, there's a great picture in, in chapter two where he talks about when Jesus died on the cross, he, he took all the stuff that stood against us and he nailed it to the cross. And having disarmed the principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in the cross. And the picture he is using there is one that would have been well understood in those days. It was the picture of what was called a Roman triumph. When a, a general had won a great victory, he would be often accorded a triumph. That means a triumphal procession into Rome in which all his soldiers were in their best armor and he would be in the chariot with someone holding a laurel wreath over his head. And there in this parade would be the 
samples of defeated soldiers and enemies from the other side. This was seen as a great honour, but the enemy was defeated there where it belonged in that triumphal procession of this general. And Paul uses that picture to say that's exactly what Jesus did when he died on the cross and defeated sin. He took Satan and all his hosts and sin and he put it in his victory procession. And even now he is leading it all the way to hell. Now they might kick and spit as they're going past you, but they are defeated. They are overcome. And the one who's in the chariot is Jesus. So, you know, whatever else there is in life, whether it's sin or stuff that would attack you or some of this peripheral stuff, get it in Jesus's victory procession. Because really the only thing that matters is the one who is in the chariot. And that's Jesus. And if we keep that as central in our focus and in our thinking, then we'll have learned a good lesson from the letter to the Colossians. I think it's clear as I've listened to you describing Colossians that Jesus is at the centre of it. How does Paul sort of suggest that we keep that focus? Great verse right in the heart of the letter, beginning of chapter 3. Since then you've been raised with Christ. Since you understand what he's done in taking everything that's written against you and nailed it to the cross, since you've understood that he is now in charge of the victory procession, he has this simple phrase, set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things for you died and your life is now hidden with christ in god set your minds on things above set your mind on jesus you see it comes back to him you know we could have really made this a very short podcast couldn't we and simply said you know this is all about jesus full stop but that's exactly what it is set your minds on jesus and everything else in life will then have a way of falling into place. And that is the heart of this letter. Mike Bowman has been talking to David Taverner. Listen to more episodes anytime. Bible books in 30 minutes. Through the Bible, book by book, from Genesis to Revelation. This is a United Christian Broadcasters production. For more about UCB, check out the website at ucb.co.uk.